This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello and welcome to The Francis Effect for the first week of December 2017. My name is David Dalt and I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith. I'm here with Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan friar of Holy Name Province in New York and is an assistant professor of systematic theology at the Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. Every couple of weeks we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Dan, as always, it's great to see you. Welcome. David, the pleasure is mine. How have you been? And happy post-Thanksgiving. And with your spirit. Yeah, I've been, I I feel like our listeners are going to be tired of hearing busy, um, but good. Like you, um, I celebrated the North American U.S. Well, that's not true. I shouldn't say North American because the Canadians have Thanksgiving in October. Okay. Um, So I guess it's truly the U.S. Thanksgiving, U.S. Thanksgiving. And it was very nice. Uh, we do Thanksgiving as a local Franciscan community, and we often invite, you know, students who are not parts of religious communities or and, and are studying in Chicago from various parts around the country to join us. They have nowhere else to go. And so we had two students from CTU join us, which was nice, with the six of us friars. And, uh, and then we, as our tradition has been in the house, go up to uh, Benedictine Monastery up in Wisconsin just for really an overnight or a weekend, we call it our, our kind of Advent Day of Recollection, kind of an in-between time of Thanksgiving and Advent to kind of recharge and renew, which for the two of us who are on faculty in the house is especially wonderful because we come back to the, you know, the, the final countdown of the semester. By and large, it was very nice. It was really good to, it was, be, it was good to be home in, in Chicago, good to be up in Wisconsin. Yeah. How was your Thanksgiving? Yeah, it was good. My wife's parents live in Pittsburgh, and so we made our annual trek to Pittsburgh, and that was great. And we we got a chance to have a couple of days there, and the kids both learned to ride bicycles without training wheels on, which was Whoa. a big milestone for them. We had expected that with Maggie, my daughter, but then Beckett just kind of followed suit. He was not going to be beaten, and they were very proud of that. I got some writing done, which was nice, and then on the way back, we stopped off in Cincinnati, which is a something that we love to do. We've got friends there, and in particular, one friend, Walter Brueggemann, so had a chance to sit down with him and his wife, Tia, and have dinner with them on our way back, and then yesterday, we spent all day driving because there was a traffic snarl south of Indianapolis, and <sighs> so we were just stuck for six hours on the road, so that's the way these things go. I have a question, though. Yes. Skyline Chile? There is Skyline Chili there in Cincinnati. Absolutely. It's true. Yeah. Did you guys have any? No. 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 But we, we did eat some good pizza. Ooh, pizza's great. Yeah. It wasn't I, deep dish, but it was what it was. Well, it, being in Cincinnati, it's it's neither Chicago nor New York. Yes. It's it's a little bit of each and a whole lot of neither. Yes. Yeah. I re- the reason I ask is because I know people from Cincinnati and from kind of central Ohio. Well, I guess Cincinnati southern Ohio, but they always talk about this chili mm-hmm. and... uh I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about it? Well, there there are Skyline Chilies here in Chicago as well. So you, really? You can at least, yeah, at least in the loop, you can you can get access to it if you wish. I did note two Skyline Chilies down near where we were staying. We always stay at the same hotel, or we try to. And walking around downtown, there was Skyline Chilies, at least two of them that we saw. So it is there, and I'll make sure to try it the next time that I'm there. I didn't realize it was a Cincinnati thing. Oh, it's yeah, it's a big thing there. Okay. So I've been told. Well, so... On today's episode, we're going to be looking at three topics. And to start out, Dan and I will be looking at net neutrality. Once again, this has reared its ugly head, and we'll look at the implications for the FCC changing regulations on how we access the World Wide Web. Next, we're going to take a detour and talk about a little bit of theology. And I think one of the things we're going to be talking about is the way that Catholics think about science and the created world, which will be fun a fun conversation to have with a Franciscan. And then in our last segment of the show, we'll take a few minutes and let you listen in as Dan and I continue to get to know one another better. We also have special bonus segments for all of you friends of Frank who support the show 
by donating each month on Patreon. Every couple of weeks, we add bits of bonus audio, an extended discussion or an interview or some other goodie. If you'd like to hear them, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod and become a monthly supporter of the show. That's Francis, the letter F, the letter X, and the word pod uh, with patreon.com at the front. Before we get started, I also want to remind you that you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at FrancisFXPod. That's Francis, the letter F and the letter X and the word pod. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing FrancisEffectPod at gmail.com. Let's turn to our first topic. So those who have been paying attention over the past probably 9 to 12 months will know that uh, about a year ago, there was a big to-do about net neutrality. And John Oliver had a a wonderful segment on last week tonight where he explained a little bit about what net neutrality was and why people should care. For those who have not seen those segments or who may have forgotten, net neutrality is basically the utilitarian aspect of the World Wide Web. It's the part of the World Wide Web that allows everyone to have equal access without having to pay extra fines or extra levies for getting faster service or those sorts of things. I mean, if you've ever been on the phone with your internet provider or your, your cable provider who gives you internet and you've been delayed and delayed and delayed, you know that these these companies that provide the internet access are not always inured to customer service or to rapid response. And the worry with the change in the net neutrality rules is that this situation would simply get a lot worse for those that do not have a financial means, that the, the poor would be left out of the equation with regard to net neutrality. And so that's that's a background, but there, I'm sure that there are pieces that I've missed. And so let me turn it over to you, Dan, and see if there's anything that you want to add. Yeah, I think that's a good way to begin talking about some of the uh, the pitfalls here and some of the real dangers of switching from what is now the policy of the FCC and the federal government to maintain net neutrality, which means that certain corporate interests and individuals, like you mentioned, particularly wealthy individuals, they can't essentially buy their way into better access or into a more competitive sort of place within the system. So, for example, think about Netflix, Hulu, and uh, HBO Go, three streaming services that people can pay for and and receive you know, their, their entertainment through. One of the effects of deregulating net neutrality or, or opening this floodgate is that one of those uh, companies can decide, for instance, to to pay internet service providers, let's say Comcast or whoever, let's say whatever the ISP is in your area, let's say you have Comcast. What happens, what, what could happen with this change as it's being proposed by the current administration is that let's say HBO wants to make it advantageous for them to make it advantageous for uh, subscribers to prefer them. And what they could do is pay the internet service provider a certain amount of money, kind of a pay for play. And what the internet service provider can do is offer preferential, you know, access and speed to that particular platform and actually turn down the speed. So let's say you like Netflix in your neighborhood and you have this internet service provider, but HBO has decided to pony up and, and pay the internet service provider for a preferential sort of access what that means is all of a sudden these other uh, companies are are disadvantaged and you as a consumer may be faced with paying additional fees in order to overcome those obstacles so it works in both directions it works on the corporate level and it works to disadvantage consumers as well and as you rightly pointed out this like so many things that deal with uh, com- uh, with with capitalism and the way that it, it kind of exists in reality as opposed to in theory, is that this will most certainly disadvantage uh, those who are most precarious, the poor in particular. The question, I think, and and I'd be interested to see what you think about this, the question is, it seems to me, especially from a faith perspective, is a matter of how do we understand the internet and access to technology in the internet today? Is this a privilege? Is this a kind of accessory that some people are lucky to have, but it isn't a right? Or does it fall under the category of something that would typically be called a utility, like electricity or gas or water. What's your view on that? Do you have a sense of this? Well, the, you're asking exactly the right question. And I don't think that there's uh, that there's a one philosophical position that, that everyone agrees on with regard to this. So I, you can definitely find people who would say that this is a luxury and should be treated as a luxury because it would not be considered 
a necessity to life in the way that water, food, and other sorts of access are. That being said, more and more of our economy is being structured around the the give and take of information and the free flow of information, such that there are entire industries that have grown up around and have become multi-billion dollar industries around the notion of the ability to share information and to innovate around the sharing of information. So to argue that it's it's just a luxury is to miss some of those pieces of it. And I, you know, I'm thinking about this in terms of not just income, not just access to information, but access to communication, the ability to actually have solidarity with people and to have connections with people and to build community. The Internet has become such a resource for that as well, for delocalized affinities. I think that there's a, a case to be made from a Catholic notion of association and solidarity the same sort of ideas that animate why it's all right and good for workers to form unions in Catholic understanding, to also find a similar argument for why it's good and important to have the ability to gather online without it being a burdensome cost. Does that make sense? It does. And I think, you know, that's a good point in in terms of communication. I think there are some other factors too. Maybe 10 years ago even, or or perhaps even five years ago, this may, may not have been rightfully viewed as a utility, as something that people should have equal access to. And again, this isn't a matter of in the U.S. it's for free or something like that. There's still a commercial dimension to this, but it's about corporations being able to make more and more money by controlling who has access to what. I'll give you an example of why I think this is no longer simply uh, a luxury, but but a necessity. And I think it depends in some part based on people's line of work, but this also impacts students too, including students as young as elementary school students. So this past week, we actually had problems with our internet in our friary. And we were our internet was down from Thanksgiving Wednesday through the Saturday after Thanksgiving. So quite, quite a, a lot, a long time. Well, we're a, a house of, of people in education. You know, two of the six of us are professors. The other four are graduate students. And now, because of the way that we, we teach and we, we you know, facilitate education, I guess is the best way to describe it, because of this, so much of the material, so much of the assignments, so much of the resources are on the internet that there was just kind of this halting of work. So in my case, I was planning on grading something like 30 papers that are all electronic, they're all online, they're all on our education platform. And my plan was to do that uh, the day after Thanksgiving, where you have this kind of quiet lull and you can kind of get into it. Well, I, I couldn't do that. You know, that, that was uh, a major, I would say more than an inconvenience, but at the very least an inconvenience. And I think this is true for a lot of industries, a lot of people. I mean, students who are working on assignments, students who are trying to learn, um, especially now in, in higher education, uh, especially at the college level, you have increased hybrid and online courses. It, it'd be like having access to power in your house and people deciding, well, you know, if you actually want to have lights on from 9 p.m. to midnight, then you got to pay an extra surcharge. That's the kind of thing that we're looking at, at least on the horizon here. Well, and that's that's something that our listeners may or may not have been tracking in this, and that is the concept of what what happens when we declare something to be a utility. Because if we look a century ago, both the communications infrastructure and the electrical infrastructure, we had companies that sunk a lot of, of time and effort into creating the grids upon which these things are built. So the communications grid, the hard wire of the telephones and the connecting points of those telephones – the, the hard wiring of the transmission and the carriers of electricity from generation point to the distribution. But at some point, the, the government began to realize that the amount of time and effort that had been put into these infrastructures created a de facto monopoly. You either had everybody running wire from point A to point B, and therefore, you know, the, the, the sky was clogged with wires, or you had one provider who was able to create these kind of gateways and say, well, I like what you're doing with your electrical usage. I don't like what you're doing with your electrical usage because it competes with me. So I'm going to give more more access to this person that I like, and I'm going to cut off the person that I don't like. At a certain point, the government stepped in and said, we're going we're gonna to take these de facto monopolies and we're going to transform them into something that we call utilities, which means, yes, you can still make a profit off of the infrastructure that you've built and the service that you provide. 
but you will now be more heavily regulated in the way that you do that. And there will be opportunities for everyone to have equal access because we recognize that though, though these infrastructures are there, these infrastructures have become necessary for common life. So what we're looking at is kind of a moving target where, you know, industry progresses, but as industry progresses, it progresses with the help of research and development, which is often funded by the government and taxpayer money. Companies are allowed to benefit off that and make make profit, but sometimes the, the government will step in and say, for the public good, we're going to minimize the profit and maximize the access. And so one of the arguments that's been happening around the, the World Wide Web is that this is this is by definition, I mean, if you look back to DARPANET and ARPANET, literally something that was built with taxpayer money. It came out of research and and the development of an infrastructure that was taxpayer funded. But we have allowed corporations to basically have little fiefdoms within that where they have made tremendous profit. But now with this turn to net neutrality, we have the possibility of all of the things that the public has put into this being de-resourced. So we'll be cut off from the public good that we have helped to create with our tax money. And now we will have to be charged again and again for this public good that we've created. So the argument for people like me would be, it looks and quacks and talks like a utility. We should probably treat it like a utility and not like a de facto monopoly. We've seen, and this is something that has directly impacted uh, the church and the, and the church's role in advocacy and leadership, particularly in the global south. So back in around the year 2000, 1999-2000, there was a move from international corporations to take over and basically commercialize the water systems in the country of Bolivia in South America. And fortunately, the people really rose up because, you know, first of all, this is the poorest of the South American countries. It's an entirely landlocked nation. It's, it's suffered and continues to suffer from the con- consequences of colonization. And, and this was just sort of a neo-colonial move. You know, we may not have these, you know, fiefdoms like you were talking about, these, these kind of empires that are taking over lands and nations. Instead, you have these international corporations that do exactly that. And so there was there was enough resistance where that was recognized as as, as untenable as as unacceptable, but I see a, a similar kind of thing playing out here. You know, it begins. I hate to use or to invoke the cliche of the slippery slope, but you know, it begins somewhere. And so uh, I don't think it's it's wrong to to say, well, if we start doing this with this kind of utility, where there where it's a newer utility, there there may be a gray enough area that people can think about this. How long is it before you know the Nestle Corporation tries to take over uh, water distribution in the city of Chicago or some other place? So, and that's precisely what happened in in Bolivia, or at least what was attempted. And so, it's interesting in, in the age of Laudato Si', Pope Francis makes it clear, and I'm thinking of water as an example because this is an important not just resource but an important part of the community of creation. That Pope Francis has said that access to clean drinking water is a basic human right. It's not a privilege. It's not something to be commercialized. And I would dare say that in the same spirit of our tradition, what you're describing in what I think is a fine argument for Internet access as a utility, the same thing applies. And what is the role of the government in this case? And this is the question, of course, that's going to be played out in the halls of Congress and with the Federal Communications Commission. The question people will say is, well, should the government have its hand in all of this? And my response is 100 percent yes, just like the government should have its hands in the water system in Flint, Michigan, and the, the government should have its hands in the ways that uh, electricity are, is, is produced and distributed and so forth that it should be a, a regulated a utility and it should be something that is, is treated in the spirit of, this, uh, of, the, of the plan or the uh, policy that we have right now in a neutral way, net neutrality. And I think in terms of you know, Catholic social teaching, in terms of our faith, we have, again, this question of and the importance of the, the common good. And the purpose of the government is to protect and maintain the common good. And I think that this uh, is an issue that that intersects very, very closely with the role of the government to do exactly that. And there's, there's another aspect of this which also should be mentioned, and that is, so the, the head of, of the FCC, the new chairman, a fellow by the name of Ajit Pai, used to be a lawyer for Verizon, and so he has strong ties to cordons of the industry, sections of the industry, that have a real interest in seeing net neutrality abolished. But there's another aspect of this to that, not just the kind of nepotism aspect, which I would, I would cynically say we should keep our eye on, 
But that's also that at the same time that we're seeing the, the kind of net neutrality ground shifting, we're seeing the possibility of, of some mergers in broadcast companies that could actually allow for, again, de facto monopolies. And the one in particular I'm thinking of is Sinclair Broadcasting or oh, Sinclair yeah. Communications. And for our listeners that don't know about this, this is probably the, the main story that you haven't heard of that has affected your life in the last probably 10 years. We all can, can kind of see Fox News as a as a broadcasting beacon for the right. But there has also been this organization, Sinclair Broadcasting, which has been slowly consolidating stations and and bringing together the ability to sort of broadcast Fox News-like stories at the hyper-local level. So they're taking over local stations, but they, what they do oftentimes is they will have this must-run edict. So they'll have portions of... Of a of a program that they will they'll put out memos that say this is a must run and these will be house produced pieces that are very slanted towards a particular worldview a particular conservative worldview, but they'll be run like native news they'll be run like like the regular news broadcast and so you won't know that you're necessarily getting a paid piece by the Koch brothers telling you to think a certain way, but every station in a in that's in this network is going to be required to show that. And one of the things that these changes in the FCC rules will bring about is the possibility of Sinclair to acquire a great many more stations and to begin to have a great deal more influence. So again, this is monopolistic in the sense that it's, it's, it's not promoting competition. It's promoting instead a, a consolidation of stations that basically are able to broadcast then one particular worldview and it's tantamount to having a propaganda arm for a certain ideological aspect of the political spectrum. And I think maybe this is a, a good place. You can see the consequences kind of rippling out, as, as you pointed out, David. Maybe it's a good place for us to kind of wrap up this conversation and just encourage our listeners, as so many other groups have too, uh, you can do something about this. You can contact your representatives in Congress and let them know that you are not for the revocation of the net neutrality policy. You can contact the FCC via the Internet. Ironically, <laughs> now you can at least <laughs> through the Internet. We should recall historically that actually this question came up, this policy of net neutrality came up under the Obama administration, and it was because of the outcry of ordinary men and women speaking to their representatives in Congress, speaking out to the FCC saying, we want to maintain this. And as people of faith, this is an important issue because it's a matter of equal access to all people. And it's a matter of not letting corporations disadvantage certain populations over others. And so thank you again. You're listening to The Francis Effect with Father Dan and me, David, and we'll be back in just a moment. Hey, this is David. This episode of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by our friends at Franciscan Media. They're seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, Ronald Rollheiser, and, uh, oh, who's this on the list? Yeah, Dan Haran. I think I've heard of him. Your purchase or donation helps Franciscan Media continue to fill the world with the Franciscan spirit. Head over to franciscanmedia.org and check out features like The Saint of the Day, a short biography and reflection of the day's saint delivered to your inbox every morning. And when you're there on the website, I'm sure that you're going to see a lot of stuff that you'll love to purchase. When you do, let them know that Frank sent you. If you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, when you check out, you'll save 25% off your first order, and you'll let them know that their message is getting out through the show. We appreciate it very much. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan, and as always, I'm here with David Dalt. Every couple of weeks, we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. The next topic that we're going to take a look at is one near and dear to my heart, and I, I know David as well, uh, since we are two theologians. Sometimes we get in the weeds of the everyday current events, which is important, the political happenings, the uh, cultural and, and kind of social issues at hand. We're going to take a little bit of a step back in this segment and take a look at a broader subject, which is in particular Roman Catholicism, but um, Catholic theology in particular, and its relationship to creation and science. 
there are a number of Christian communities and, and Christian theological traditions that have been, let's just say at best, incredulous when it comes to theology's engagement with non-theological, non-philosophical, non-scriptural traditions, and there are others that are outright hostile to it. The Roman Catholic tradition, at least, does not fall into that camp. We, although historically we've had some run-ins, uh, a certain name like Galileo might come to mind. But let's talk about that. David, um, this is something that, that you've suggested that we, we chat about. I know it's, it's important, an important theme for you. About a year ago, I had a chance to do a brief series of podcasts with the chief curiosity correspondent from the Field Museum, a wonderful woman by the name of Emily Grassley. And the pretext of that short series of podcasts was literally, she comes from a science worldview, I come from a religion worldview, let's sit down and get to know one another and talk across the divide, and the, the name of the show was called Divides Aside, let's, let's talk across this and see if there's commonality, let's see where we differ. And it was clear that there were places where we distinctly differed, and it was also clear that there were places where we had some interesting common ground. And there were even places where I found fascinatingly that we flip-flopped. So, for example, there was one episode where we talked about the way that I'm choosing to raise and my wife and I are choosing to raise our children. We don't teach them about Santa Claus. We don't teach them about the Easter money. We don't, we, we say, you know, in our culture, we participate in this and there's a person that dresses up like Santa Claus. There's a person that dresses up like the Easter bunny, but we don't perpetuate the myth, spoiler alert, <laughs> that, that Santa is real. Wait, what? And... No, just kidding. And so, and and the reason why is because we we said, I said to Emily, there are some myths that I'm going to be telling my children about and have been telling my children about, about, you know, this guy that died and got back up again from the ground and lives forever and can give us eternal life. And I don't want her to be confused when we then say, well, Santa's not real, but Jesus is. And it was interesting to me that Emily was very much the reverse of that. She was not very interested in the religious mythology at all. She had been raised uh, in a religious household, sort of, but she was not interested in really living that. But she was very interested and really loved the, the, whole, the whole teaching kids about Santa and teaching kids about the Easter Bunny and all those sorts of things. And so this has just been a, a, a sort of a subject of endless fascination for me. Having grown up in the Deep South, where I had friends who were deeply devoted to evangelical worldviews, it's also interesting to me, and I was affected by this at, at certain times. So there, there have been times in my development as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, where I would have identified myself as a young earth creationist because I didn't have a better narrative to go with. When I became Catholic, that opened up for me, and I am, I'm interested in the ways in which Catholicism has navigated what has become a kind of oubliette, a kind of dead end for some other of the Christian traditions, because other Christian traditions look at the Bible, they look at Scripture, and they can't get past what they find in Genesis 1 through 6. And Catholicism has managed to get past that in some pretty amazing ways to the, to the extent that, you know, the Vatican has an observatory. The Vatican has scientists on staff who are trained both as priests and as scientists. This fascinates me. Now, the other thing that fascinates me is that you are dedicated to a tradition, the Franciscan tradition, which takes the whole of creation very seriously, not just the human aspect of it, but the way in which the createdness of the world allows for community and kind of brotherhood. And we've talked a little bit about this on other episodes, but I'd just like to kind of kick it back to you and say, you know, with, with all that as, as kind of my interest points, where do you want to take it from here? Well, if I can just yeah go back a little bit to, to the point about the kind of competing mythologies as yeah. you talked about it, just to clarify for our listeners too, who who might uh, perhaps be confused if, if you're not kind of steeped in a, in a theological education. So when David said, you know, there's another myth, Jesus of Nazareth, et cetera, he doesn't mean it in the same way that he's talking about Santa Claus. And that's precisely the reason, as you rightly noted, that you, you and your wife have decided not to kind of perpetuate a, a particular narrative with your children. And I just want to clarify that, you know, mythology in the popular sense, when we associate with things like Easter bunnies and Santa Clauses and so forth, is understood as something to be intrinsically untrue. Yeah. And it's it's false. It's it's a story we tell and it might have some sort of learning or something, but it's it's not true. Mythology in a theological sense, though, is something else. And what, what we mean by that actually brings us back to this divide that I think you're naming between uh, Roman Catholics and, and, and other Christians, mainline Protestants of certain stripes and so forth, and other Christian communities that have a problem with contemporary science and technology and so forth. And that's that they have 
by and large, a biblicist or fundamentalist or literal interpretation of Scripture, which in earlier episodes we've talked about. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church has made it very clear. The Pontifical Biblical Commission has outlined the various ways that Christians and the Catholic tradition are to interpret Scripture. And the only methodology that's explicitly prohibited is this literalist or biblicist, this so-called fundamentalist reading, uh, which is that we don't take the Bible to be literally true. It's not a propositional document that God dictated down to Moses writing the first five books. The key thing here is that we do not hold that view. We understand that there is there's there's what's called the sensus pleni or a fuller or, or deeper meaning in the sacred text that the spirit continues to speak to us. And the way that I like to talk about it sometimes, and I, I don't even recall if I've talked about this on the show, I, I may have before, but I speak about it often in giving talks and, and certainly my students have heard me say this, that from the Catholic perspective, a great shorthand is to say that everything in the Bible is true and some of it happened. So that, you know, we aren't concerned with the historical truth of, let's say, the Genesis accounts, and we're not concerned with the sociological or psychological truth in the sense that we understand truth today to be kind of historical facts. Rather, we're concerned with that census plenty or that fuller meaning. What is the truth with a capital T that's communicated? And so when we talk about a myth with regard to scripture, we're not saying that something is untrue. In fact, it's quite the opposite. We're saying there's a truth but that too many people at times who identify as Christians or religious people get stuck at that, su- at that surface meaning, that superficial meaning. It can never actually access the truth because they're so concerned about, you know, the historical facts or the chronological facts or the scientific facts, quote unquote. This is tricky, and I appreciate your correcting that that statement that I made. So I, I confess to having read too much Boltmann in graduate school. And so mythology for me is a more porous subject. But he I love to demythologize. He did. That's but, his catch word. But, but he was often, even by other theologians, misunderstood when he used that, that terminology of demythologization to think that he was trying to say none of this is true. That's not at all what he was trying to say. But that brings us to then this sort of deeper piece, and that is in our culture— Science is kind of the master narrative right now that that most people go to for getting at truth, and I'm scare-quoting that right now. But the notion is that somehow the things that are really true are the things that can be measured and can be reproduced. And so the scientific method is all about keeping very careful track of the things that you have measured so that other people can come along behind you and measure them in the hopes of reproducing the, the data that you have created to corroborate it. This is not the way that theologians think about truth oftentimes. We think about truth instead in a more narrative sense and in, in the sense of a, in a, more, a more moral sense in terms of uh, this is less the, the truth of, of the repetition of Francis Bacon testing things in the, in the world and more truth in the sense of Socrates going around and asking people, you know, what makes for a good life? What is a true virtue that we should hold on to? What is something that is unchanging that is good? In this, in this universe. Those sorts of things are oftentimes the truths that we, that we as theologians are trying to get at. Now, that being said, I think, and please, I'd love to hear your opinion on this, I think that the more that we pay attention to those kind of humanist truths, that can help to discipline the way in which we go looking for other types of truth in the world so that human life truly is enriched and not, uh, not diminished. Yeah, I think there's a false dichotomy that you're kind of describing, you're kind of maybe moving around, mm-hmm. and that's, you know, the, the sort of modern mind approaches these disciplines in the spirit of what Stephen Jay Gould described as non-overlapping magisteria. Mm. So that science deals with one set of information and questions and religion does another. Another way to think about it is that science deals with the how things are. And religion deals with the why things are, the the kind of meaning behind it. And I hear you, you know, in some sense, rightfully identifying that. Although I I would say, too, that actually that kind of false divide has come under some heavy criticism in in recent decades. And I think with good reason, because there's stuff that, you know, the, the scientific, the hard sciences, as we would call them, the natural sciences in their methodology and in their fields and disciplines 
there's stuff there that they presuppose is a matter of faith, for instance, certain constants, certain mathematical presuppositions, things that uh, cannot be empirically identified, which would be kind of a key constitutive dimension of, of the scientific method. And yet in order to advance any kind of theory, any kind of uh, hypothesis, there have to be these kind of constants or presuppositions that are maintained really truthfully in a non-religious sense as a matter of faith. Conversely, there are things that we learn through theological reflection and engagement, through uh, the traditions of spirituality and uh, religious institutions that are more than just kind of, quote unquote, and these are not your words, but, but people might approach them as like these fluffy truths, like how you feel and this kind of thing. So it's not just the why in a kind of doxographical or opinionated way, but rather there are kind of hard truths that are uncovered in the practice and the, and the, the and there is a scientific disciplining of the fields themselves, these religious fields of theology and scripture studies and hermeneutics and philosophy of religion and so forth. So I, I think, you know, there is overlap. And, and one of the neat things, uh, I guess this is our starting point, even for this conversation, is that within the Catholic tradition, there's a respect for both of these dimensions in both kind of areas of, of study and of inquiry and of reflection. Well, and one of the things then that leads me to ask is, Science shows us all the things that we can do, and in every year that list grows more exponential, like the the limitations on what we can accomplish as beings is becoming smaller and smaller we we have We have almost unlimited capacity to adjust, hybridize, change the basic facts of our humanity. For me, one of the things that's very appealing about Catholicism is that Catholicism tells us why we shouldn't necessarily always follow that capacity, that there are natural limits to what we can and should try and accomplish as human beings. There are natural finitudes that we should not try and transgress. And this was one place where, to harken back to that conversation that I had with Emily Grassley from the Field Museum, wonderful conversations, but she and I fundamentally disagreed about this. I mean, she, her opinion was, if we can do it, we should do it. And I, I think that there's a danger there. And so one of the things that I like in your talking about the, the non-overlapping magisteria, I think that that's a good, useful term. I also, for me, the real interesting point is where we actually can overlap the magisteria and we can say, yes, science has given us this wonderful gift. We should not unwrap this particular gift. <laughs> if only, uh, you know, the Manhattan Project had considered that, for instance, if there was a theological advisor on hand. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and it's, there's still, even in your, uh, in your telling of that, I think that's, that's the kind of general modern, and by modern, I mean post-Western enlightenment way of thinking, this kind of sense of the individual and of liberty, sort of really what the United States experiment was grounded on in the late 18th century was this, you know, our constitution and declaration of independence were inspired by these ways of viewing the human person and of exploration. And that has led to a lot of problems, manifest destiny, you know, the, the, the destruction of, of, our, of our environment, the, our surroundings, the polluting of, of waterways and land, genocide of native peoples and so forth. So, I mean, there, there are problems with that way of thinking. And, and I would say that actually one of the critiques that's been raised by, by scholars, both religious scholars and self-identified secular scholars in the last, I would say, half century certainly after World War II, is a real critique of the inevitability of progress and this idea that we can, we, as human beings, we are just limited by ourselves up to a certain point and that we can, you know, if, if we can do it, we ought to do it, all these sorts of things. Yeah, I think religion presents a, a certain governor to that, and it should in some cases. But I also think it, we have a deeply distorted view of the human person and of ourselves. And when it comes to non-human creation, we understand this under the category of anthropocentrism, something that Pope Francis talks quite a bit about in Laudato Si. When we understand it in terms of other settings, I, th I think it's just a, a, an experience of, of hubris, you know, that, you know, that we can kind of do whatever we want, et cetera, et cetera. And I think in some sense, this is that overstepping that we see played out in Genesis 3. Again, you know, was there a dude named Adam and a woman named Eve and a talking snake and an apple tree and everything? It doesn't matter. It's just, it, that's not the question, right? Everything in the Bible is true and some of it happened. Whether that exactly happened or not, the truth of Genesis 3 is that 
seeking to overstep our boundaries. The kind of perennial temptation is that we're not good enough. We could always progress to more. We should want more. And so we don't deal with the present. We don't deal with ourselves. We don't stop to reflect, as you've said, on you know, what God intends for us in creation. We're trying to do something else. I think there's a, a place here for religion, not just as kind of an external governor, but maybe as 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 a another means, another way of exercising human co-creativity to understand who we are and that science actually can't uncover that. You know, the natural sciences, as as they progress, and they progress tremendously thanks to the creative gifts of, of human persons and the community and so forth, still can't answer things like our consciousness, you know, our being in this world, the, that anything exists at all when it doesn't have to. I mean, there are things that are uh, are deeply important that are not empirically verifiable. And so theology, religious reflection, religious study has a lot to contribute to that. But what I love about this also is that whereas some Christian traditions have taken that that friction and have become very rigorously anti-science, Catholicism has not become anti-science in that sense. Catholicism is open to the inquiry. It supports the inquiry, and it supports, in many cases, the findings of that inquiry. Now, as you rightly pointed out, we don't have a spotless record on this front. Yeah, and it's complicated. I, I would say I think that's generally true. We're very much, as, as a church community, the Roman Catholic Church is very much on the forefront of Christian communities and their embrace of scientific inquiry and supporting that. There's a Vatican Academy of Sciences. I think that's what it's called. Mm-hmm. I don't know. In any event, there, there are a number of organizations that, that in, engage that. So that while that's true, there are also many ways in which we have not learned from, you know, we can bring things like our ethics and our moral theology to medicine and scientific inquiry, and, and that's very important. But there are so many ways in which I personally, and this is Dan speaking here, don't feel, and, and I'm not alone, so it's not just me, I should say, but uh, don't feel that we have learned as a theological community and as a community of faith as much as we ought to from modern natural sciences and social sciences. And so there's there's a bit of a one-way street going on here in that some of our uh, dogmatic or, or systematic theology, for instance, the understanding of the human person, what's called theological anthropology, it's still very deeply rooted in a 13th century, you know, neo-Aristotelian worldview, which does not really map on well with what we know about the world from the empirical study of, of the human person, of medicine, of science, and so forth. So that's just one example among many where we have a lot of work to do in terms of, the, of continuing this dialogue. Well, and that may be a good place to leave it for now, and uh, we'll certainly come back to this topic. I love to talk about theology with you, Dan, so thanks for taking a few minutes to, uh, to uh, entertain these, these questions and thoughts. To be continued. To be continued. And we will continue in just a moment. You're listening to The Francis Effect with Father Dan Haran and me, David Dalt. We'll be back after this. The Francis Effect is made possible in part by our wonderful supporters at Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod to find out about how you can join them. A couple of dollars a month really adds up, and we appreciate it. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash francisfxpod. Thank you. You're listening to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt, and I'm here with my friend, Father Dan Haran. Every couple of weeks, we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. So in this segment, Dan, I want to return to something that we did a couple of weeks ago, which is where we spent some time trying to get to know one another, because even though we've been doing this now for a number of weeks, we're still kind of fresh at all this, and we're still kind of learning about each other's pasts. So I come from a very mixed religious background, and you, from what you've told me, you come from a much more kind of linear religious background. You were raised Catholic, you went to Catholic schools, and you very early on discerned that you had a vocation to the priesthood and also a vocation to join the Franciscans. I also know that you're a big fan of Thomas Merton. Big time. And one of the things that I know about Thomas Merton was that he was deeply in dialogue with those of other religious traditions. In particular, I'm thinking of Buddhists. And so I'm wondering, I want to ask you, as you have progressed in this linear fashion with your Catholic upbringing, going into your Catholic priesthood and your Catholic vocation as a Catholic friar, have you ever had your attention diverted 
by other religious traditions, or have you taken any time, a la Merton, to be in conversation with those from other religious traditions? Ooh, that's a good question. I think, well, in some ways, I'm like Merton with regard to this question, that I'm not afraid of or defensive around other religions. Now, what when you say that Merton was not afraid and was not defensive, yeah. flesh out for us what that means. Yeah, so Thomas Merton, he never, um, and I don't know if this is what you implied, but it's one way I, I, I think I'm kind of hearing how maybe our listeners might hear your question, because it's one possible response on my end which is, you know, kind of going aside is like, oh, maybe I'm going to practice another religious tradition for a while or explore that and kind of close off or bracket Catholicism or Christianity. And there's some people who mistakenly think that's what Merton was about. And so he never, he, he always, his entire adult life, he was always a practicing Roman Catholic, um, a faithful monk in, in the Trappist order, the order of Cistercians of the Strict Observance. And, um, and so people were... I guess you could say people have been confused by this idea of somebody who is a, a you know, a spiritual writer, a deeply contemplative, prayerful Christian, a Catholic priest and so forth, being so interested in non-Christian religious traditions. But something that Merton wrote about has always resonated with me. And he, he said, in, a, in effect, kind of responding to these critics, even in his own time, that you can't actually engage in interfaith or interreligious dialogue unless you are deeply, deeply rooted in your own. And I think that's an important thing to remember. In our modern kind of age and the time we find ourselves, there's a lot of the technical term would be called syncretism, this idea that people are kind of picking and choosing, oh, well, you know, I like the meditation uh, practices of Buddhism, but I also like, you know, the Christmas celebrations of Christianity, but I also like, you know, the atonement practices and, and Judaism and these kinds of things. Merton did not support that in any way. It was very much against that. His feeling was to put the dialogue and interreligious dialogue requires that you bring something to the conversation and you can only bring something if you're deeply rooted in your own tradition and committed to that. So he was. And in that sense, that's what I mean when I say I'm much more sympathetic to that experience. I feel very grounded in my Christian faith. I feel very very grounded and in, in rooted in my uh, Catholicism. And so uh, that's that's what I meant. And when it comes to other religious traditions, that that's also what I meant when I said, you know, I'm not afraid or threatened by them. Some people will say, well, you can't talk to Muslims, you can't talk to Jews, you can't talk to, you know, non-Catholic Christians, you can't talk to Eastern, you know, people practicing Eastern philosophies or religions. And And that's just not my perspective. Now, to the specific point of how much I've engaged in interreligious dialogue, interfaith uh, conversations, probably not nearly as much as Thomas Merton. And part of that's because just the nature of my own ministry and work is that so much of my time is spent teaching, researching, writing, speaking about Christianity and Roman Catholicism. You know, it's a professional hazard of training other, you know, Christian women and men for ministry. I'm not opposed to that. And I don't think I'm closed off at all from the possibility of exploring that more in the future. There are there are people, Catholic theologians, who spend their whole lives and careers doing precisely this. They become, you know, very conversant, fluent even in the traditions and the histories and the experiences of other communities. And that just hasn't been my particular experience. Similarly, I, I as a practitioner, you know, somebody, I haven't been drawn to another tradition outside of my own, not because I'm unexposed to it, but just because... Um, I feel basically at home. So how about yourself in terms of, you know, Eastern traditions in particular? Yeah. So growing up, I mean, so there was no, there was no Christianity at all in my home when we grew up. My father was, was a crypto Jew wearing a mezuzah uh, around his neck, but he never talked about it. And it wasn't until I was, I was in my late teens and early twenties that he and I began to have substantive conversations about kind of what all this meant. And so I had no, no referent for any kind of Western religion growing up. And when I began to become interested in kind of transcendental subjects, when I began to be interested in something other than just the material world in my mid-teens, so around 13, 14, 15, it was under the influence of, of some people who were very into the New Age. One of the first texts that I actually kind of really spent time with was the Tao Te Ching. And I still come back to that as a very important kind of touchstone. There, there are aspects of Taoism that inform me even to this day. That being said, Taoism does not demand that one ally oneself to the Tao in a way that Christianity demands that one identify fully with Christianity and not with another tradition. 
So I can say that I am a Catholic who takes Taoism very seriously, and I don't feel a conflict there, and I don't ever feel a threat to my central kind of identity as a Christian. That being said, you know, I think that there's wisdom in those ancient texts. So I read the Tao Te Ching, I read the Bhagavad Gita, I read the Upanishads and some other Eastern texts, and all of that was led me to sort of have uh, a kind of very very gullible Western notion of how I understood this stuff. Let me give you an example. Years before I met my wife, I had a serious relationship with a woman who was a chemist, and I had read a lot of kind of pop physics books, physics that uh, was popularized, like Frischoff Capra and... and uh, Brian Greene. Those, those kind of folks, yeah. exactly. And so I said, yeah, yeah, I, I kind of basically understand quantum physics. I mean, I know, I know how this <laughs> stuff works. And she smiled at me, and she walked over, and she pulled a pad down, and she pulled out a pen, and she wrote a quick equation, and she said, solve that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I said, I, I, I can't. And she said, you don't know anything about quantum physics. And, and that's, that is very much also the way that I was about these Eastern religions. And so uh, when I was older, a very important book that I came across, and I can't remember the name of the author, but it's a book that I recommend highly. It's called Why You Are Not a Buddhist. Hmm. And it's basically a book that is being written to these Westerners who embrace in a cafeteria style certain aspects of Buddhism and think that they somehow have got it. And it's like, no, if you don't, if you aren't actually grasping these four noble truths and you aren't living them, then you, you aren't, you can't have the trappings around the edge and really be it. And I, I guess we could say the same thing about Catholicism, that we, we can find co-religionists who, who at times will sort of pick a piece here and pick a piece there. They're sometimes derogatorily referred to as cafeteria Catholics. So every tradition has this kind of danger. But for me, it, you know, I'm fascinated by the ways in which these other communities have chosen to orient themselves morally and with with regard to wisdom in ways that have nothing to do with the narratives that that are core to how I see myself. Yeah, it is really fascinating. Um, I think it's also important for us to point out, too, that from the Catholic perspective, we talked in the last segment about science and religion and how Roman Catholicism in particular is very hospitable, even encouraging to a certain degree of the natural sciences. So, too, in the Second Vatican Council, in I think Nostra Aetate or Unitatis right in Grazio, I, I don't remember exactly where, but there's, there's a very clear and very powerful, I find very moving passage that says there's nothing true in other religions or cultures that the Roman Church rejects. And so there's a recognition whereas prior to the Second Vatican Council, this idea that the only right way to live, the only right way to view the world, the, the truth with a capital T was only found in the Roman Catholic Church. This, not even just other Christian communities, but this one alone. And there's, there's a certain kind of, I think, honest reckoning that comes in the wisdom of the ressourcement, the going back to the sources and the ornamento, this kind of updating of, of the tradition at the Second Vatican Council that the bishops and their theological advisors and their wisdom recalled that actually Christianity formed over the centuries from dialogue with so-called pagan or secular cultures. You know, Thomas Aquinas, his writings were condemned in the 13th century because he was using Aristotle, this pagan philosopher, and was, in, was drawing from Jewish and Muslim philosophers who were interpreting Aristotle. You know, if you go back to Augustine in the 4th century and early apologists and early theologians, they're using Platonism, Neoplatonism, Middle Platonism, and so forth. There's this recovery of the fact that there are there is truth that that we can find meaning and truth and insight, wisdom in other traditions, and so that's not to be rejected. We're not kind of a siloed religion or community, or we shouldn't be at least. So I think you're exactly right when you talk about you know it, it's not just these other traditions that have this kind of piecemeal or a la carte kind of operation. I mean, it's certainly true in, in our own tradition. But also, I think people shouldn't be afraid to learn. They may not be experts, just like you're not an expert in quantum mechanics, but, you know, it it doesn't hurt to know something about that. It may even be life-giving and life-enriching. And it might, as Thomas Merton found, you know, going back to him, he found his conversations with practitioners of Buddhism, uh, Hindu priests, uh, uh, rabbis, uh, Muslims, people he engaged with, he felt more strengthened in his own faith, not because he rejected other people, but because he did what exactly the council calls for, which is recognizing that truth and wisdom in others. Well, and it makes me think of a mutual friend of ours, uh, another professor at CTU by the name of Scott Alexander. And in conversations with him, Scott has said that his work with Muslims has really taught him how to be more faithful in his own Catholicism. So 
Muslims pray five times a day when they're when they're in a certain type of devotion, and he says, you know, that that helped to drive him back to the liturgy of the hours and to to a much more prayerful and much more sort of centered place for prayer in his life. So I think that what you're saying is exactly correct, that we oftentimes will find that people who are deeply committed to their traditions help us to be more deeply committed to our own. And I think also of a, another friend of mine, Peter Oakes, who helped to start the Scriptural Reasoning Project uh, years ago. And this is the basic premise of the Scriptural Reasoning Project, that we, we don't come to the table hoping to convert the other person. We come to the table in hopes of creating a better way to disagree so that we all leave and go back to our communities more enriched and can enrich those communities. So to me, that's, that's an, interesting, an interesting piece. So I appreciate you letting me kind of ask you that, that preliminary question. Has it always been, now I'm going to ask you another question, has it, always, has it always been a linear drive? You say you've never been tempted by these other religious traditions that you may or may not have explored. Have you, have you ever had a dark night of the soul, a crisis of faith, a moment where you feel like something didn't make sense and you need to, you need to reevaluate? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, I, in fact, linear is your term, not mine. Sure. I, I don't think I would describe my, my faith journey necessarily as linear. I would say that it's been somewhat in the orbit, maybe gravi- speaking of quantum mechanics, uh, or at least Newtonian physics, gravitational forces is a better kind of image rather than a linear kind of, that leans too much toward a progressivism or something that I don't think I experience in my own life. It's much more circular. It's much more orbital in that sense. So that, you know, if we think in terms of a solar system, I would describe my own experience of my religious tradition, of my faith, my vocation, my practice, my prayer as being in an orbit around the sun of this tradition, right? Or in the solar system of this tradition, the sun, of course, being Christ. And I'm one of these planets or moons or something kind of, sometimes it's spring and summer and I'm really close and it's warm and and that sort of thing. And other times I find myself, it's like this fall or winter. Um, I'm further away. Things are darker, not easy to see. And and that varies. Yeah. So, you know, without getting into the specifics, I, I mean... I find it very comforting and disturbing at the same time, uh, the narratives of, of great Christian women and men that challenge me. I think of somebody like uh, Mother Teresa of Calcutta, who as many people know today, spent the better part of the last two decades of her life in, in, a very, in one of these kind of outer rims of the solar system, feeling very cold, feeling very uh, doubtful about even whether or not God existed, God's love, and these sorts of things. And yet, every day was able to engage in these acts of charity and love in the most unbelievable, most difficult circumstances. And so I am no Mother Teresa. I, I can barely do the little things of love, let alone the great things that she does and or did. But I, but I can appreciate and I feel in some solidarity with uh, these moments in life where I'm like, yeah, does God exist? Or like, what, what is God up to? Maybe that's more commonly a question. Like, I don't understand you know, this doesn't make sense, or I have my own doubts, or what am I supposed to do? You know, these kinds of things. You know, the way that I, and maybe actually I haven't talked about this this much before, but or at least out loud or in, in a public setting like on a podcast, I don't know that I've ever doubted the existence of God. It doesn't mean that I won't. I think I've doubted the import or the significance of God's existence. You know, the quali- what is this God like? You know, who are you, God? You know, and that doesn't change people. I think sometimes look at professional religious, they look at sisters and brothers and priests and they're like, oh man, they must, they, they've got it, right? They're so holy. So, no, that's all BS. You know, we're like everybody else. We're human beings struggling to live out our baptismal call like anybody else. They're, they're just these, I think the seasons and orbits make a lot of sense to me in terms of describing that. I think there are these seasons where things are much clearer, things are clicking. You know, you see God uh, in the world around you, you experience God in your life as I certainly have. And then there are times where you don't and, or yeah, or you're confused, or you're not sure. I can imagine Mother Teresa asking like, is this what you want me to do? You know, is this the right thing? I, I don't, I'm not hearing anything. I don't feel like I'm getting a response. And to that, I feel, you know, very much in solidarity. There are times in my life where I'm like, you know, are we just going through the motions of prayer? But I think that's, I think that's pretty common. Yeah. How about you? Well, I'm having been an atheist for a significant portion of my early life, uh, I still have, and I think I've mentioned this, I still have a strong inner identity with that atheist. And so I feel like a lot of what I do is kooky. 
and, <laughs> and, and, and so the doubt is kind of baked in all the time. But that actually, I think, helps me having that, that doubt baked in because it then means that I'm not haughty or I try not to be. Um, I joke sometimes at haughtiness uh, when I'm, I, I have a lot of friends that are professionally, academically religious, and so, but they're across a spectrum. And so there will be times when, you know, one of my friends who is much more progressive on a lot of key subjects than I am will say something on Facebook, and I will give a retort that is very stridently conservative, theologically or otherwise. And so I play at, I play around the edges of that. And to me, you know, the doctrine is very important. The, the structure of the doctrine is very important. There's a core to that that is extra doctrinal, but is not metaphysical. I don't know how to, I, I've, I have a, another dear friend who's a priest, and he and I have gone around and around about this because I don't really have, I don't have a metaphysic in what I'm doing. It's when someone holds up to me the host and says the body of Christ, there doesn't have to be anything behind that for me to say amen. I don't have to imagine any kind of a sparkly, mystical, shiny thing that's really hiding behind that thing for it to function for me as the body of Christ. I'm a weird Catholic in that way. Well, no, I think you're an honest one. Okay. Um, <laughs> you know, a lot of people, uh, a lot of well-meaning Catholics might go around and throw the T word around and say, well, this is what we believe. What's actually happening is transubstantiation. Yeah. But what the, what the canons of the Council of Trent make clear is that that's a fitting way to describe what's going on, what it, to describe what it is we believe. Transubstantiation is an Aristotelian scientific yeah. phrase, right? It makes sense in a hylomorphic world. But it would be like saying it's, – it's like borrowing you know, something from quantum mechanics, let's say entanglement theory or something to describe what's going on in the Eucharist. Is that what's going on, entanglement? Is that what's going on, transubstantiation? The answer is actually no. Mm-hmm. What's going on is what you're describing, a recognition on some level, spiritual level, of the sacramental presence of Christ. What yeah. we believe when we say real presence is that Christ is sacramentally present in, these, in this Eucharistic species, not that transubstantiation happened. That's just one theory mm-hmm. that was popular in the middle, middle Ages in the retrieval of Aristotelian hylomorphism to account for what it is that people believe. So do you have to believe in transubstantiation? 100% No. What you have to believe in, quote-unquote, have to believe in, right, as, as a Catholic, is that this is the sacramental presence of Christ. So I don't think, you know, I think what you're describing is it's, it's not, it shouldn't be scandalous. To some people, what I just said might be shocking because it's the first time they've ever heard it. But you don't need to have a metaphysical, you know, medieval kind of understanding, nor do you need a contemporary quantum mechanical explanation for what's going on. Because our this goes back to our science and religion conversation of, a little while ago that this is supra empirical. This is not. This is something more than we can put into a scientific method, and that's what transubstantiation is. It's medieval science. Yeah, and I, and just to sort of to come back to your question from a moment ago, and just to give it a, a succinct answer, I think yes, I have had crises of faith, but but my faith was kind of born in crisis. I mean, I I became a faithful person because I basically had a nervous breakdown and realized that the path that I was on was not going to be a sustainable path. Like I was a, I was a very good self-centered nihilist and that fell apart for me. And in the process of that falling apart, I had a, a recognition of something that was greater than me that was calling me to be a part of it. And so for me, having been born out of a crisis of faith in terms of my, my religious identity, it's always kind of baked in. It's always kind of there. That doesn't mean that I don't have bad days, but it also doesn't mean that I'm always kind of Pollyanna saying, yay, 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 Jesus, everything. Um, But I do have moments of, of, you know, I see in my children, and let me kind of end on this. I see in my children moments where I'm I'm seeing a connection that I will never have. And let me just give you one example. We were driving from Indianapolis back to Chicago yesterday, coming back from the Thanksgiving break. And there's a stretch of road where there are just some really hardcore evangelical signs that just billboard, billboard, billboard along the highway. But there's one that says, and I don't know the mile marker, what it's near, but it it says just this phrase, Jesus is real. And we were passing this. And from the back, I heard this exultation of joy as my daughter sort of whooped and said, yes, Jesus is real. And I was like, Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You get it. This is good, seven-year-old. And so, so yeah, so in that sense, somehow the something's taking. 
And that at least brings me a great deal of joy. Amen. <laughs> well, with that, maybe let's let's wrap this up. Thanks for letting me ask you those questions. I really do appreciate it. Hey, and vice versa. Always good to talk. The Francis Effect podcast is produced by Sandberg Media. We produce the show at the William Adams Studios here in beautiful Hyde Park on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. The opinions expressed on this program are our own and do not reflect the position of any institutions with which we might be affiliated. We have production space courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. They're not responsible for the content of this program, but they're wonderful folks, and you should look them up at zygoncenter.org. That's Z-Y-G-O-N center.org. We also want to give a shout out to our friends at Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They're also not responsible for the content of this program, but they gave us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it. Check out their good work at saltandlighttv.org. We're supported by listeners like you. If you want to join us in this bold adventure, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. Not only do you get the warm satisfaction of a virtuous deed well done, but you also unlock bonus content from our episodes. Again, that's patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. You can follow us on Twitter at francisfxpod. That's Francis and the letters F and X and the word pod. Likewise, our website is francisfxpod.com. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing francisfxpod at gmail.com. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Thank you for listening. And in a couple of weeks, it's going to be our last episode for this season. See, episode eight. We got to tell our friends, hey, friends out there, this is David and Father Dan, and we're just letting you know that this season is going to be coming to a close because we're going to do eight episodes, but we will be back in the new year. Happy New Year. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're out. All right, thank you.